online radio podcast zelie havna ku havna tayu Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Over in England, we have the lovely Bianca Mangum. Nope. Hello. Um, the wrong person spoke first, sorry. <laughs> and then... Because, because it's not Mangum anymore. Oh, crap, I didn't even notice either. <laughs> oh, well. No, it's he's, he's Bianca he's Richards. He's... Should I restart... No, that's fine. It's entertaining. Okay. Anyway, so Bianca Richards, and then we have the talented William Annis. Who remembers when people are married. Hello. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Anything new today? Bianca, before the show, you were saying that you found some Welsh on TV. Yes, I did find Welsh. It was very disappointing. (laughs) I wasn't going to mention it because... I didn't have fond feelings over it, but, you know. Okay, well, fine. <laughs> oh, today... It was just terrible. Yeah, I don't know. Today I had um, some visiting relatives. Oh, and I took my the GRE yesterday. Ooh, how was that? Um, I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> because they revised the test and changed the scoring system, so I have to figure out exactly... What um, what exactly my score means? But I think that my verbal went down and my quantitative went up. So I'm gonna have to look that up online and see and see if they have a way to compare the two, so that I can be certain of that. Uh, why don't we actually get started here? And we have today. This is a topic that kind of came up in a previous episode, and we just decided to get into it later. This came up in the correlatives episode, and think, we just... I think we should mention that we're doing this this week, because last week, or some week, I don't remember anymore, because I'm old, um, that William actually prepared to do this topic, but then we ended up doing something else, because that's what we had really planned to do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I had all these great notes on the topic we weren't discussing. <laughs> but I got to use them. Yeah, he yes. had all these notes on demonstratives and we during our he was going to talk about it during the correlatives episode, but correlatives is like 15 different things. Yep. And we never got to the demonstratives part of it. So, we're going to talk today about that. Um William, why don't you take it away? Well, there's a bunch of different distinctions. So, demonstratives is a very complicated way to say words like this and that. Um, Another term for this is deixis, which is just the Greek word for pointing out, whereas demonstratives is the Latin word for pointing out. Um, One useful concept when talking about these is the deictic center, which means wherever it is you're orienting... um, your descriptions from. Very often, it is from the speaker, but it doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. So, across languages on the planet, there are 
pretty much two fundamental distinctions that your demonstratives can make. Near versus distant and insight versus out of sight. Hmm. So by distance, we mean this book is close to me. That book is remote from me. Um, what that distance means can be fiddled with. In fact, it's usually fiddled with. Um, it can be actual physical distance. It can be distance in the discourse. So one of my favorite examples is you can start a story in English. So I ran into this guy yesterday. Well, this guy is not present anywhere physically, but he is close to the discourse that's about to happen. And it can be used for other sort of conversational things like ancient Greek has a bunch of demonstratives and it has, um, among other uses, one of them is used to refer to things you said already and a different one is used to refer to things you are about to say. So using demonstratives to talk about what you're talking about is very common cross-linguistically. Um, the, the distance aspect of this might be so strong that markers of location might be involved. Um, in non-standard English, you could say this here, book, that, their book. Yeah. Um, also people known say as Swedish. That here. Oh, Swedish does that as well? Exactly. Yeah. People so say French, that so here in West Virginia. Pardon? People say this here, that, there, over here, over in this part of the world. Right, right. <laughs> And then French does the same, uh, celui-ci, celui-ça, celui-là, rather. Um, it has no uh, distance marking in its demonstratives per se. It uses this little extra particle, si or la. Um, and si, at least, is transparently related to the word ec, which means here. Mm-hmm. Um, Esperanto pilfered this idea as well. Um, it appears to be, <coughs> excuse me, appears to be, um, an area effect in Western Europe, but it's pretty rare elsewhere to do things this way. So, in terms of your distance, you can either have a two-way distance system or a three-way distance system. You can either have here and there, like in English. You can have here near me, there near you, and there near somebody else entirely is the three-way system. The most common for that is Japanese. Mm -hmm. So, this, that, and yonder thing. So, English used to have this distinction, but it's lost in, in mainstream English at any rate. Um, and in many languages, you can use demonstratives as pronouns and as adjectives. This book is read is an adjective. This is read to pronoun. In most languages, those look the same. In some languages, they have different words. Japanese is another good example of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically... You'll have the same number of distinctions in distance, but if you don't, the pronouns will make more of those distance distinctions. So, basically, what you're saying is the most common sort of distinction in demonstratives is the distance. Yes. So, I know uh, Spanish has the here, there, um, and yonder. Right. So And... They also, all this depend, although this depends a little bit on the dialect. Sometimes they can, they they have different ones that can mean motion toward and motion away from the speaker. Right. So that's that's another set of distinctions we can get to. There's all sorts of things that might be additionally encoded on on demonstrative. Um, one thing I was going to say but forgot 
So I mentioned that there's, in the simplest case, you have a two-way distance or a three-way distance distinction. This and that versus this, that, and yon. Um, the two-way systems are slightly more common but um, than the three-way, but not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, a demonstrative set that makes no distance distinction, like the French one or apparently the Swedish one, or that makes four or more distance distinctions, both of those are very, very, very rare. They occur, but they're very, very unusual. So, well, so probably, if I you just in in my mind, I wouldn't say that they don't make the distinction because I just count them as a unit kind of compound thing and just say they are right. Which so that's basically takes us how into, it works. Right, that that takes us into theoretical matters. Do we count it as having none, yeah. but it's using adverbs, or are they effectively anyway? That's why I don't like walls anyway. No. So I would I would probably say then. If you aren't really interested in doing anything particularly interesting with your demonstratives, just pick pick one out of two or three. Yep. And just go with one of those. But if you want to do something interesting, you can go with the the one the the no distinctions at all, or you could go with crazy distinctions. And right. William, you had a bunch of notes here about what you can do when you actually go into the crazy distinctions. Oh, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff. So we're just talking about really basic stuff so far. But all sorts of other things might be encoded in your demonstratives. Mm -hmm. A a very common additional distinction to make is, can the thing be seen? Mm -hmm. So that over there versus that out of sight is a very common distinction to make. That makes sense. Yeah, I have that in the language I did in field methods. That's something that would be very important pragmatically, sure. sort of. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it might be important to people to know whether you can, whether the speaker and the listener can can see what's going on. And it gives you a way to lo- locate things that you're talking about in the environment without having to add, you know, relative phrases or attributives saying where mm-hmm. they are. So, among the things that might be encoded are. Um, Uphill versus downhill. <coughs> Excuse me. Uphill versus downhill from you. Upriver or downriver from where you are. So, and, and other elements of the geography might be involved. Um, I forget. I saw some language where it, it, it wasn't uphill versus downhill. It was if something was located above you. So it could have mm-hmm. been in a tree. Could have been up a hill. Huh. Could have been in that shelf that my grandma can't reach. I mean, just <laughs> above you. Huh. That's interesting. Right. Um, and then, as you were saying before, another common one is encoding movement to or away from the deictic center, which we'll just assume is the person speaking for now, because that's easiest. Okay. Well, what other deictic center, centers can there be? The listener, maybe? Uh, uh, if you're telling a story, the center oh. may be the point of where, where the setting of the story is. That makes sense. Right. Or um, where your focus character is or whatever. Right. Yeah, all that stuff. So, especially in the languages of North and South America, there's all sorts of really just wonderful systems. Um, Blackfoot is my favorite. Um, Blackfoot is originally an Algonquin language, but it's living so close to speakers of these wonderful, crazy languages of the Pacific Northwest that it has borrowed a whole bunch of these features. So, there are five basic demonstratives that encode distance 
and familiarity. Hmm. So you have this and that, but you also can say this thing that you know what I'm talking about or that thing that you know what I'm talking about. Um, so Blackfoot, one of the five encodes, it's not near any of us, but we both know what we're talking about. It's not quite like definiteness, but it's pretty close. Okay. So in addition to those five basics, there's a parallel set of quote-unquote diminutives versions of these, and those are only used to refer to people that you have some sort of affection for, children and, and grandparents especially. Okay. So that's that simple. damn child of mine. Yes. That, yes. Um, <laughs> but to these, there are four suffixes that may be added to all of them. You can add one suffix that says the thing is non-moving. You can have one suffix that says the thing is moving. However, it is not moving towards the speaker. Okay. Um, you have one that says it's not visible to the speaker. Right? So this is... Instead of having an entirely different column of demonstratives for this, it, you know, it's compositional. You just smack a suffix on. <clears throat> and then my favorite of all four is a suffix that says that the location information encoded, is it near or distant from the speaker and the, the listener, um, refers to that proximity at a time other than the time of speaking. Okay, explain this to me. The thing was close to us at some other point, just not now. Okay. If you were away from your home, you might refer to your home this way, for example. Ah, uh, okay. That cat we just passed. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Um, some of the combinations are lexicalized. So one of them, where you take the demonstrative that means something that is not near either the speaker or the listener, but is familiar to both, you smack on the stationary suffix that is used to refer to people who are dead. You like features that refer specifically to people who are dead, don't you? Well, it's an interesting thing. There's so many ways to do it. That is that is interesting that, it, uh, that they would lexicalize it that way. Yeah. And then there's some other lexicalizations that have to do with what we would consider adverbs of location. I'm not, I'm not going to list them now, but they're there. Um, so that's the the Blackfoot system. Um, when I read about the Blackfoot system, it was heavily footnoted with people saying, we need to do more research. We don't understand this. But some of these, like, who discovered the one that says it refers, the proximity information refers to some other time than the time of speaking? <laughs> How do you figure that out? That sounds like a very confused person going like, wait, what was that? <laughs> Can you use it here? No. Can you use uh-uh. it here? No. Here? No. <laughs> uh. um, so, right. So the morphology of demonstratives is interesting, right? You, you can treat them, do you decline them or not? All of that, you know, various possibilities are there. Um, one thing I want to draw special attention to is that in some languages randomly located around the planet, demonstrative adjectives only go with nouns that are definite, so that you must use the demonstrative, whatever the equivalent of the definite article is, and the noun. Mm-hmm. You can't just say this book, you have to say this, the book. Mm-hmm. Where the could be a separate word or a suffix or whatever it is you're using to mark definiteness. Oh, okay. Um, 
for most people, the most accessible example will be ancient Greek, but it, it shows up from time to time in other languages. Um, I think the last place I saw it was in some Austronesian language on some small island somewhere. Okay. Um, if you have classifiers, like number classifiers in your language, there's a non-trivial chance that those classifiers will also be used with demonstratives. Yeah, and, and you that's mentioned- not just Chinese. Yeah, you mentioned that it's not just Chinese that does this. I know the Chinese does that, but most most of the so is this uh, a very common thing or sort I of like half and half? I get the impression it's very common. Very common. Okay. I, I I get the impression that it is not very common. Not very common. Okay. Um. So or you might have the option to use it with or without the classifier, with the classifier indicating some, adding some nuance. So, again, some Austronesian language, I think it was Austronesian. It might have been Australian. Anyway, the using the classifier was used for focus. Oh, okay. So, just this book, uh, we don't have classifiers in English. Uh, this, <laughs> this, this cattle, or, or that cattle, that cow, is normal, and you'd say this head of cattle um, would be used to, to mark focus either contrast or announcement or whatever. Okay. This brick of Lego. Yes, 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 this brick Lego. That's a good good measure for that. Um, (laughs) Somebody... That's that's a joke from the boards where where I I made a joke with somebody because apparently in, in like, Britain, Lego is not a count noun. Anyway. Yeah. It's I've never awkward. come across it. Right? Is it Lego or Legos? Yeah, well, anyway. Yeah, anyway. But it, I haven't but, gone around talking about Legos to find out. Yeah, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, 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 let's leave the Legos be. Um, and I think that's it. I mean, um, the Eskimoan languages are notorious for making all sorts of wonderful distinctions. Um, so... It's kind of a classifier thing, but it's not really. So you can have something that's either compact or extended in space. Um, And in some languages, extended in space means you can't see the whole thing at once. So a river would use the extended demonstrative because you can't see the head or the end of it, only the part that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. But Um, other languages have sort of taken the the long, the, the length as the thing. So anything that's more than, say, four or five times long as it is wide becomes susceptible to using the extended demonstratives. I think you mentioned on the other episode that this was inspired by that um, what Greenlandic has, one that used to mean out the sea and then eventually got out the um, yeah, meaning of that in Denmark. In Denmark. Yes. Because that's where the Danes came from, across the sea. Um, I would say, like, the only thing that I was thinking about that you didn't mention, and unfortunately I didn't do any, like, research on this, so I don't know how common it is, but demonstratives, this kind of goes with the fact that they can be adjectives, but demonstratives can carry gender agreement and number agreement, Agreement. case agreement, probably. Um, but that's, I don't know, pretty much anything that modifies a noun or, or has a noun strongly associated with it, like, you know, a verb having 
the the subject gender agreement with the subject and object, you know, anything can carry that, but I just thought I would mention it. Yeah, sometimes they're more like particles, right? They're there, they're in a fixed location in relationship to the noun, but they might not participate in other kinds of marking. Demonstratives are all over the board, mm-hmm. and that takes us into the sort of larger sub superset of determiners, um, yeah. which takes us into deep, theoretical, scary waters that... <laughs> That we don't want to deal with. You no, know, that I've not read up on, so I'm not going to talk about. Um, well, there was, something, there was something I was going to say about the Eskimo languages, but I forgot. Well, I think, you know, this was... Oh, this oh was, I remember. Oh, Sorry, let me get this out. So, <laughs> the, the extended or compact, um, my favorite example is a boot or a mitten that is far away from its opposite pair might be marked with the extended version of the demonstrative. <laughs> that makes sense. It does. It does. It I just perfect that sense. Was, I think it would be even cuter if it was like the kids' mittens that had like the piece of yarn connecting them. <laughs> just fun. a massive one that like went across town. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's not really. It's it's a subject or that did require its own show, but it was still a little bit of a short subject. But yeah, um, I'm glad that. Huh? Well, there's just two last things I wanted to add. One, okay. If you're doing historical, sort of bigger historical linguistics, it's pretty common for demonstratives to weaken into definite articles. Yes. Yeah. So you know you might have articles that sort of kind of look like whatever your demonstratives are, or you might have things that are needed to beef your demonstratives up because they've sort of been worn down and turned into articles, so you need to do something to, to make them be demonstratives. Again. They might turn into personal pronouns, too. Or they might turn into third-person pronouns as well, yeah. Um, and then in a few languages, I've noticed, and I've not read anything about this, I just noticed it over time for the few languages we have with nice long histories, is the copula in some languages is transparently related to older forms of the demonstrative pronouns. And the two examples I can give are Coptic and Mandarin Chinese. That's interesting, because I knew that classical Chinese had a different um, copula, but I didn't know that, because I don't know much about, actually, the historical... Yeah, no, shu. Yeah, shu is originally demonstrative. Yes, it means this in classical Chinese. That's interesting. And you can sort of see how this would happen if you have syntax. You need some way to distinguish, you know, A from B when you say A is B, and it might get beefed up by a demonstrative mm-hmm. idiom, um, and then over time it becomes the copula rather than a demonstrative. Um, yeah. What was I going to say? Yeah, and the and the other one's Coptic. I, I can't remember if I don't know if we have enough historical data on enough languages to see that more often. Yeah, it might be something that we would have to look at carefully in a bunch of languages and see how common it was, but it's a good, if you are doing historical development, it's a, it's an interesting sort of way to uh, get a copula. Sure, you can come up with copula that's not a verb, but still has to agree. Yeah. Um, I mean, Chinese has no agreement, but in the Coptic case, you have to agree with gender. Oh, you do? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so... Nothing else to really say about that? About the... Um, no, if you... Yeah, I can't think of anything. It's, uh, 
walls is okay. It doesn't really talk about some of the really mega. William, you're roboting. Okay. La la la. Should we reconnect? Still robotty. Um. Let me see. Can I? Um. Why don't you like? Can you? Can you just unplug and replug? I can, but that's not going to help. Oh, say something again. Hey. You sound fine now. Okay. That's weird. Some- I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how to mute people, and then because sometimes I've heard that if you mute people and then turn them back on, it fixes that. But anyway, mute Bianca, are people? you there? Huh? <laughs> Sorry, I was making a joke. Mute is people. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! What was the one thing the guy said? Mood as people. Mood as people. Oh God. And anyway, George can edit this out. Anyway. Uh, moving on. Dun dun dun. Our featured conlang today is one that a lot of people will know about. It is Quenya. So, um, for the two people who don't know what Quenya is, it was created by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's one of his elvish languages. Quenya and Sindarin are the two. And Quenya, I understand, is the more prestigious of the elven languages, but also the less spoken in his world. Right. At least at the time of the uh, Lord of the Rings. It's spoken, like, in Rivendell and pretty much nowhere else. He features it all through his writings, through Lord of the Rings, through the Silmarillion, and, uh, I have a sound sample of it. Probably a, a few people, a lot of people, you guys will probably, um, recognize this. It's um, one of his poems, Namarie, and uh, Will and Bianca, I'm just going to play this on my end. I'm not going to set it up for you guys to hear it, so I'm starting it now. Andun ne pellavardo tellumarnu luini yassen tintelari eleni o mario aeritari lirinen. Si mani yuldan inden quantuva. An si ten talle varda oio lossio del fania maria telentari ortene. Arigli ti arundulavi lumblea sindano riello caita morni e falma linna rinde metar hissie un tupa calacilio miri oiele. Si vannona romello vanno valimar. Okay, so that was J.R.R. Tolkien himself reading the poem Namarie. And you can tell from it uh, that he he did develop a great deal of fluency in the language. And also, because, well, he worked on his languages all his life and continued to tinker with them. All through yes. his life. The nightmare <laughs> of his constant tinkering. <laughs> Actually, that reminds me, uh, back on the article that you were quoted in for about two sentences, Will, mm-hmm. um, there were a bunch of comments about, oh, they're not living languages, conlangs aren't living languages, because, you know, once they're done, they're done. And I was like, clearly this person knows nothing, because all of the conlangers I've spoken to are constantly changing their stuff until the day they die. Yeah. Or until yeah. they get tired of it like me and kill it. Right. 
or abandon their child because they found one they like better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is an interesting thing. And, and William, you did put into the notes that should we bring up the idea of a dead Conlang? And it you might say it's dead insofar as Tolkien is dead and he can't do anything to it. But then, years after his death, somebody actually modified... I guess... In the movies, it's just Sindarin that they speak most of the time, right? Right, right. So, somebody modified Sindarin for the movie. Somebody could pr- presumably take up Quenya and develop more of it. I'm sure someone has. Yeah, well, this is the fun thing, and the, the central irritation of token linguistics in general is he never stopped tinkering, and this is true of both Quenya and Sindarin. So... When you give things like a verb chart, you need to attach a date. Is this the 1940s verb chart or is this the 1960s verb chart? Right? I mean, and they may be different. I mean, the most famous example, of course, is that the word la in one version of Quenya meant yes and in a later version meant no. Um, I, I forget which one came first, yes or no, but whatever it is, that's a fairly substantial change. Yes. Unfortunately, most aren't like that. So you have, on the one hand, people who love studying... Tolkien's languages as sort of an intellectual exercise. Um, and my God, do these people fight. <laughs> and then you have people who might want to use these languages, whom the other crowd don't much care for. But you're stuck with things like sort of neo Quenya and neo Sindarin, where you try to fill in the gaps based on what you know. And, and it's always necessarily somewhat speculative. Now, from time to time, some new piece of information is released from Tolkien's papers, and it's like, oh, we've learned a new verb or, or whatnot. Um, but, yeah, these it's very, very hard to produce new Quenya or Sindarin without having a large number of footnotes justifying your practice. Yeah. Of the two, Quenya is most solidly documented, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in terms of what's available publicly, but both have the problem. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, why don't we kind of move into talking a little bit more about the actual language itself, sure. as far as we know anything about it. And the grammar you gave us here, uh, it doesn't have much phonology, it looks like. But well, it's not a grammar per se, it's a set of lessons. Right, this is the Quenya course by Thorsten Rink. Yeah, it's, it's lessons technically, but it has a lot of information on it. And, and can I say something? Sorry. The one thing I like about these lessons that sometimes you don't get in the grammars is that because they assume zero knowledge, they do a much better job of explaining some things that sometimes people who know the terminology can just get so convoluted in themselves that they don't really explain things properly. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm also going to say it's not that big a deal to me that he omitted phonology information because uh, you can get that in the back of the Lord of the Rings in the appendix, that much information. And also, his, the phonology is not that interesting, honestly. Well, it's only annoying that he has a section called phonology and then he just lists the alphabet. <laughs> um. <laughs> Without even like explaining that C is going to be K, because... 
I personally would make the mistake. Mm-hmm. No. It's yeah, it's cut, right? Yes. Yeah, See, it's, I'm it's confused always... about it now. He anyway. liked that about Latin and he decided to use that well, all the time. I think though, for me at least, um reading um Artolambian mm-hmm. and realizing how restricted the phonotactics of Quenya really were really opened my eyes to the ideas that controlling your sound system was one of the best ways to give your language a particular phonetic character. Um, right? He has a, a not a very large sound system. Voiced consonants only occur in when clustered with resonance, huh. for example. Um, and a lot of this is what gives uh, Quenya its character and certainly is the effect that a lot of people copy when they are first try to invent their first Elvish language. <laughs> it is interesting. I, looking at the words, it appears like he also has very, fairly strict uh, syllable structure. Yes, yes. Very restricted syllable shapes, and yeah. certain sounds can only occur in very, very restrained positions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and that's the, the thing that... Tolkien was extremely um, interested in was Tolkien is the guy who coined the term phonesthetics. He was very interested in how the language sounds and how the sound of the language can have a certain aesthetic appeal. So I'm sure he did a lot of work on making sure that all the words sounded good to him at least. Yeah, yeah. Now, you can argue how how interesting or how good that system is. the The fact that it has a lot of restrictions is interesting. The actual sound inventory doesn't seem very interesting to me. Or, and it doesn't have much allophony, does it? Mm, Probably not. No. No, I think it's interesting. I think. Some people always want to make their language more exciting by finding exotic sounds, but sometimes by using the fewer sounds, I mean, maybe not go Hawaiian crazy, but using fewer sounds, more restrictions can be interesting in its own way. Yeah, I I believe that 100%. I think there's many, many more interesting things you can do with a simple sound set than most people realize. I mean, that would be an interesting exercise, right? Take the sound inventory of Quenya and devised a few different, completely, a completely different looking, sounding languages just mm-hmm. by changing your phonotactics. I think I have a very similar, um, if not the same, except for maybe, you know, a palatal lateral system for one of my languages, but it doesn't sound like this. It sounds like Basque, because I wanted it to sound like Basque. <laughs> so anyway, talking about some grammar... Mm-hmm. For one one thing is Quenya has dual and partitive plural number, right? Uh, that's a very some some um, controversy still about what it, exactly the partitive plural means. I think mm-hmm. maybe that's been resolved. But the last time I looked at this closely, people were like, "Well, we think it kind of means this." <laughs> um, it has a large case system because it's inspired by Finnish. Yeah, I can't. I I haven't gotten to cases in this 
scrolling here. Page 147 will give you all of them. Yeah. Okay. It has quite a bit of verb conjugation, which I guess would be the Latin. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. and Finnish does too. And, well, I don't know much about Finnish except it has a ton of cases. Right. So it does not have the case um, inventory of Finnish, but it certainly has. How many does it have? One, two, okay. three. Nominative, genitive, possessive, dative, accusative, locative, allative, ablative, instrumental, respective. What's the respective here? Yeah, yeah I have no idea. Well, looking at those, um, I see some that you could associate with Latin, but I know that, I know, actually, some of the ones that you can associate with Latin, you could also associate with Finnish, because Finnish has, I think, all of these. Right. Uh, one thing, I mean, it's supposed to be Latin-like, but... Frankly, some of it is quite like Greek, which is another language we know he knew. Um, and that is that uh, – I forget which one. One of his past or perfect firms – anyway, he's got an augment. Um, let me find it. The description of the respective is pretty much – we're not entirely sure, but it seems to be somehow related to the locative. Right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the perfect in Quenya – involves taking the stem and uh-huh. changing the stem, usually by lengthening the vowel, if that is permitted by the sound system, and um, having a prefix that is simply the vowel of the stem. So the verb for right is take, and then the perfect stem is a take. The verb for to veil, gosh, that's an elvish word, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, is fanta. And the perfect is afanta. So this this is less Latin than it is Greek and Sanskrit and Armenian. Well, very interesting. I wonder what would have happened if he got his hands on some more exotic languages. These, um, yeah, because these, looking at the verbs, the verbs do still ring a little bit of sort of Indo-European because particularly since he's um, mixing the particular way he's mixing uh, tense and aspect. Yes, yes, absolutely. And also he has two infinitive forms, which I'm not exactly sure what the difference is between those. But The second infinitive is used in subordinate constructions. Okay. It's a noun, so it can take the possessive suffixes. Okay. So, like, I, I see him... I, I want him to run or something like that. And it can also take the direct object suffixes. Okay. Um, which is less like Latin and more like um, Altaic languages. Um, like English and Finnish, he has a negative verb. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the semantics of the, the sort of tensant aspect mix is, is quite like old Indo-European languages. I mean, and that was what he was, right? He was an old philologist. Yeah, he we had should... plenty of Greek sh- and Latin. He had old Norse and old English and... and that was his work. Yeah, his languages, as well as his, as his books, were really the um, the product of a particular place in time. He had certain languages that were available for him to study, and a certain sort of uh, Britain-centric, you know, European outlook. Yeah, um, but with elves. Duh, because elves are the best. Well, 
And he studied uh, a lot of Celtic and Norse mythology, which is where he got the elves. Um, yeah, I think he, yeah. How much, apart from liking the sound of Welsh, how much, do, well, I suppose we had the answer very Welsh. Anyway, I, I get the impression that he was more on the Germanic side of things, which makes the choice of Finnish so funky. What was yes. it about Finnish that grabbed him? Probably all the cases. I, I don't Perhaps know. all the cases. I Yes, yes. He was hung up on the sound. Um, I know that he liked the sound of Welsh, and he didn't like the sound of Irish. And there's huh. people who have actually compared his black speech that appears in the Rings poem to Irish. That seems a bit of a stretch to me. I don't know... I don't know. It's it's got some sort of odd. Um, One thing I think we can say. I think you guys will agree with me. Tengwar is beautiful, but it is somewhat. Uh, how do you say? Annoying. No, um, I'm trying impractical. It's yeah. I I I pity any elf that had the slightest hint of dyslexia. Yes. I don't pity any elf. <laughs> I don't either, but this, having to be saddled with this writing system with a large, constant inventory that they all look alike. Yeah, yeah. It, it looks nice, but it would be a pain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that gives you the impression of, I won't say a beginning conlang, but definitely a conlang, is there is an unnatural amount of flexibility in a number of areas. For example, you have several ways to conjugate a verb. You have short endings, you have long endings, which you can use either, however you see fit. That's not very natural. Um, And and this flexibility pops up in multiple places. Um, Part of me wonders if that is not an artifact of the fact that we're our knowledge of Quenya and Sindarin comes from small snapshots dribbled out to us over time by the estate of Tolkien. Yes, and um, so we could be mixing ideas from different periods without yeah. knowing. And also, we should think about the fact that Tolkien, as I understand it, started out with just simple language games when he was in, like, the equivalent of high school. Mm-hmm. So. Some of the that those notes that we're getting may be from some of the very oldest versions of Quenya, which were probably not necessarily as sophisticated as what he came up with later. Well, I don't know about. I don't think we're in too much danger of that because mm-hmm. um, he really revised these languages heavily as he learned more. Mm-hmm. Is the impression I get. But- I. The one thing I'm wondering is if there's anything here that isn't present in what he learned from other languages. In that respect, it feels very kind of, I don't know what to call it, very kind of guarded in that he only, as far as I know, someone else can call in and tell me I'm wrong. He only used what he found before, and maybe he didn't, you know, try and think something crazy, even though it was probably already Anadu, but, you know. Right. Well, yeah, his goals were definitely different from a lot of modern art conlangers who are always interested in learning about interesting features such as, you know, the demonstrative pronouns of <laughs> a Blackfoot or something. Yeah, um, he, he's or, not I, really... I think 
he may not have had the opportunity, but I think if he did, if someone was like, here's this grammar of this crazy language we found, he would probably find something he wanted to keep from it. He did go a little bit out of um, sort of the the European-esque sphere. Obviously, I can't say Indo-European because there's so much Finnish influence in Quenya. But um, he went a little bit outside of the of Europe, too, because I know that what little we know about the the secret language of the dwarves it involves the fact that he based it on Hebrew a little bit. Um, <laughs> so he he knew, you know, what you w- what a, um, uh, a an educated man of his level would know about various world languages. There's probably a lot of gaps in his knowledge that even a beginning conlanger can fill with with could the have, internet. Could fill with the, the internet. internet. Yes, yeah. he didn't uh, have there, the internet, and no, he didn't have the benefit of a culture that was interested in wildly uh, different languages. Yeah, uh, my guess is he might have grabbed some features, but really his focus was so different. Right, mm-hmm. he wanted a good sound, and. For whatever reason, he decided this historical, linguistical exercise was what he was all about. Yeah. So I don't know if he would have cared about, you know, having seven different demonstratives encoding all sorts of different things. I think, yeah, he probably wasn't interested so much in making an interesting language as in making a beautiful language. Right, as as he saw that. Um, I don't know what else to say. I mean, it, it's... It's so hard to say things clearly about this language. Either you like it or you don't. Certainly so many, especially all those of us who are a little bit older conlangers, you know, Tolkien is the patron saint of what it is we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know what's funny? I read The Lord of the Rings, and I didn't like any of the conlangs in it. So I kind of <laughs> passed on it in my younger days, and I was like, yeah, whatever. I don't know. His aesthetics are pretty contradictory to my own, since he liked Welsh, but... <laughs> it's a good testament to someone who was doing it before, well, at least the resources we had available now were available. I mean, he yeah. was an academic. He had he had plenty of access to resources, and there are some people well, who... Well, he didn't have the internet, okay? He did not have the internet, but he did... Uh, some I forget where. Somebody thought they saw the influence of Urartian. Was it in the Black Speech? I don't know. Yeah, I forget. Whatever. <laughs> so we're supposed to be talking about Quenya, though. Um... <laughs> yeah, Quenya is it has some things that are superficially Finnish, but so much else about it is straight up Indo-European. Mhm. Okay. The use of prepositions and the way they, these constant prefixes to verbs and nouns, it, it all looks very yeah. So, um uh, what what do you suggest, William? How do you suggest people look at Quenya? Clearly, you know, you can't necessarily draw a lot of stuff about um, interesting features necessarily, although there are some interesting things that you might want to incorporate. Sure. Um, um, honestly, it's for the lessons in the historical process for those who want to conlang in that way, or even those who don't. It's useful to see. Um, Artalambian, I've mentioned that site before, has some of the most 
extensive documentation on the development of all of Tolkien's languages from this proto-language. Um, I don't know that the proto-language was ever developed, but certainly we have long lists of roots. Um, mm-hmm. So vocabulary can be generated this way. And that's really great. Um, if, if for an average conlanger of you know, average financial means in this wonderful economy, you probably don't want to buy David Salo's book called The Gateway to Cinderin. Um, because I am a conlanging fanatic. I actually own it. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's presented like one of those really old-fashioned, out-of-Oxford grammars of Old English or Old Norse. And your first chapters are all about the proto-language and all of the sound changes that happened to reach the language under discussion. So, Salo's book is this immense historical linguistic document. Wow. That's interesting. Um, right. So, right. So, David Salo, for those who don't know, is the guy who concocted the Sindarin for the movie. For that, he had to make all sorts of stuff up. Yeah. Uh, and But that's not what his book is about. People people argue, I'm sure people, Tolkien fanatics, get really, really mad about... Oh, absolutely, sure. ...about stuff, but, you know, there were lines in the movie in Elvish that you couldn't do with the the scene uh, that existed. So, yep. but, um, anyway, I think, you know, look at it as... Um, I I would look at it the same way that I would look at other things that are interest are um, important in the history of conlanging. So looking at Tolkien language Tolkien's languages is the same for me as looking at Esperanto, looking at some of the early philosophical languages and sure. stuff. Not necessarily gonna model myself after what Tolkien did, but I I acknowledge his contribution. Yeah, if you want to create a language that satisfies some aesthetic sense Obviously, he's the granddaddy. Um, really, the the his lesson for us is the historical stuff. Mm-hmm. So also the secondary lesson of not getting carried away with the language and write your damn book. Yes, write the book. <laughs> write the book. Well, and there can be something. There's something to be said for the fact that he kept tinkering with his languages forever and never actually had a finished canonical version. Obviously, you can never finish a conlang, okay? We know that. But, like, for me, I have the benefit of I wrote up a grammar of Iorio and I put it on the internet. So, as far as anybody's concerned, what is in that grammar right now is canon, and I'll add stuff to it and maybe make some sections a little bit clearer, but I'm probably not going to change much about what's on there. Right. He was the working on no his own. is not going to switch to be the word for yes? Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> he was working on his own. The only things that people could consider canon was were in the books, and he even revised stuff that was in the books. Yeah, so you get weird hybrids in some editions of the books. And he ended up you know, with a very confused language and that makes fans to this day very confused. So, right. You, if you want to, so that's a lesson to you if you want to make your language public in any way, if you want to put it in a novel, in, into fiction, or you just want to put it out there and see if anybody cares to look at it, 
you probably want to try to canonize a version and only add to that, not completely rewrite that. Yeah, yeah. And that's the conlanging, you know, it's the, it's the impulse, right? It's just, first of all, you know, someone's going to learn, hey, I should have a demonstrative pronoun that encodes motion. Right? So <laughs> right. Which yeah. I, actually I hope will happen, but, you know, if other people... I mean, so few no, of no, us no, no. Have, have, you know, other yeah. people using our languages that it probably doesn't matter much, but... I may I may do that with a future conlang, yeah. but Iruya was already established as having a three-way demonstrative uh, distinction, so I'm going to keep it that way. So does Quenya, by the way. I checked that out. Does okay. It does. It also, in addition to the three-way distinction, it has another one. Let me find it. That I it thought was, was like in- before and after some sort of temporal thing. I think. Yes, there was a, demo- a temporal encoding in one of them. Let's find page seventy-eight. I thought it was neat, and it seemed naturalistic enough. Yes, there's one that refers to something that you know was happened back in time. Uh huh. That's interesting. So you've got this and that, Sina, Tana. You have Enta, which is Yan or Yonder, that thing over there, which in addition can refer to something in the future. And then it has Yana, which only refers to something in the past. You know what? So that's, that's not my, a perfectly symmetrical mix. So, so that's not, not impossible, I think. For my one novel that I'm actually going to write, I was considering that I actually have been writing that is completely different from the the fictional world that I want to put into um, put put Iruya into. I had thought of just not doing any conlangs for it, but I might just mm-hmm. do a conlang for these ra- these fey creatures that exist in this world and add like crazy demonstratives to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, just a chance to use them. You know, yeah. I'm a fan of, like, every once in a while you get these things and you really want to use them. Just make some sort of small, silly language and get it out of your system. <laughs> I have a variety of joke langs. I have a cat language, I have a shoe elf language, and I have a mermaid language. All of which have these weird things I really wanted to add, but didn't really want to try and smush it into my major things. Can I maybe borrow your shoe elf language? <laughs> I've I've been wanting to borrow um, William's mall elf language because I actually incorporated mall elves into something. But uh, can do, but it's horribly called knack. That's awesome. But I don't it has, know. It's an idiophone for the sound of making shoes. Maybe I'll just make my own languages for those, though. <laughs> anyway, anyway, we've ceased to talk about uh, Quenya. So <laughs> why don't we? Why don't we do some feedback? Feedback. So, um, we got a couple uh, things in our feedback queue today. Um, we got an email from, I think his name is Stephen Rogers. May, I might have copied that down wrong, so I'm going to check. But, um, no, it is. He's anyway, been, he was on the forums as well. Stephen D. Rogers. his book. Mm-hmm. And he made us a book recommendation. Oh, he's the guy who wrote it. Yes. And it's a dictionary of made-up languages. So, from Adonaic to Elvish, Zalm to Klingon. Have either of you guys seen this book? I've Mm. seen it referenced. I've not read it. 
I have only seen it by him posting on the forums mm. to say, "Yo, here's a book." I've heard. I've I've seen people talking about it, and it seems to be valuable. I'll well, see. I don't understand the purpose of it. Yeah, I don't either. The, the descriptions are very wee. They don't really say much. Really. Which okay. makes them less interesting to me. I mean, in in some sense, it's it's interesting to hear about other conlangs that I might not have known about. For example, I hadn't realized that there was a short-lived um, science fiction series that had a language invented for it um, until I read the New York Times article that I appear in. It's like, oh, Matt Pearson. Was it Matt Pearson who invented that? I think so. Um, so hearing about them, but if I'm going to hear about some new conlang that was invented, I would like to see details, which this book does not have. I mean, it says a few things about them based on the snippet views I'm getting out of Google, but... It seems more like conlangs in sort of pop format for non-conlangers. Yeah, that could be. It might be. I don't know. I might, once I get my, uh, once I get my Christmas gift gift card, I might uh, get the Kindle version. Because Kindle version is actually a little more expensive than I like for a book for like this. Anyway, um, and we got a comment from DJP. I think this is on episode 9. I must have ranted on the the color orange on that episode, because this is what he said, is English has 11 basic color terms. I think you may be getting confused about what basic color term means. A basic color term is a color term that can't be explained in terms of other color terms. So in English, you can't describe pink as light red or whitish red or anything. That's how we know pink is a basic color term. The largest number of basic color terms is 12, Russian and Hungarian, which have different basic color terms different basic terms for what we call light blue blue and dark blue. Basic color term does not mean not produced from derivational morphology. Orange is a basic color term, even though it's a borrowing. Puce is not a basic color term, even though it's pretty cohesive. See this description before any link to Wiki- Wikipedia. So, okay. And okay. I, I, I already pro- replied to his comment, but um, I'm, I'll say it on the record on the podcast here. Okay, I get it that orange is actually, by the technical definition, a basic color term in English. And I think it is, I think it, anaranjado is basic in Spanish as well. Spanish and yeah. French and well, German. Well, you're not going to go call 11. it red yellow, that would just be foolish. Well, um, you would if you didn't have orange as a basic color term. Yes, but you'd have it in Spanish, therefore it's basic color. Yeah, well... Um, anyway. And I, For me, I just don't like the color orange, so I will never create a language that has orange as a basic color term. Is it... <laughs> it definitely has to be one of the later colors on, it the, is well, one of the, on the scale. It's, yeah. it's way, like... It's not actually on the scale, uh, on the um, on in the natural progression. It's yeah. like sometime after you actually go through that progression that you yeah. actually get orange. Um, yeah, because the the last stage on the um, on the 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 scale for basic color terms, stage five, 
is white, red, yellow, green, blue, black. So yeah. orange, purple, pink. Yeah, pink. pink. The light it's and dark a lame blue. Color term. Those are those are all things that would come way, way after after you have a whole bunch of others. Um, I don't like considering pink as a basic color term, just because as an artist, it's clearly just a tint of red, and it's not even like somewhere else on the spectrum. It's just a tint of red. Yes, but um, it is. It just a annoys basic me. I know, I know. Well, that's the, that's the thing, though. Just, okay? just bear with me here. If you can be annoyed by orange, I can be annoyed by pink. It's not that... It's, it's, it is a basic color term. Well, it is. You but could it's say the same thing so. of, of green that you could say of orange is that it's it's yellow and blue. Well, pigment it's yellow and blue, but then with light yellow and with light green and blue, it makes yellow. So that's actually confusing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the whole color thing is pretty confusing in general. But you know, I'm. It's. What was interesting to me was uh, after that I looked at walls and I said before, it looks like the 11 color terms is like something that infected the Western European Sprachbund because English and Spanish and French and German all have 11. Are they the same 11? I don't know because walls doesn't tell me that, but I'd have to look. Um, I know that Spanish actually has the same. Well, I, I asked a Mexican friend, but she didn't understand what I was trying to ask her. So, um, yeah, I but, think it has less to do with the Sprachbund than the economics of high tech dyes. It could be. I know that Spanish has purple and pink and orange. Although the orange in Spanish is, it's transparently. It's even more transparent than the English because English just has a zero de- derivation, and Spanish actually adds a circumfix to it. Depending on which Spanish you speak. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just always going to be true. I you. learned anaranjado. You can also say de color naranja or just naranja was, sometimes, yeah. but um, but I don't know. It's just interesting. We need to do a, a whole thing. On, well, maybe not a whole podcast on color terms, but when we do semantic fields, we need to spend some time on color terms. Yeah, they're they're a good start. Uh huh. Um, I especially like those conlangers who actually go through the trouble of taking like the image from your RGB selector and carving that up into their color terms to show you the range of a color term. Well, it is kind of hard to tell if you just say green. One <laughs> thinks I'll call green, my mom will call blue, which I think is a pretty typical place to get all mushy with colors between mm-hmm. green and blue. Yeah. I'm like, no, it's green, it has yellow in it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, so that's about it for the podcast. Uh, Bianca, do you have any words of wisdom? No. William. Yes. Do not talk about Piraha unless you have read papers about it. <laughs> I'm sick of hearing about it. I even, like, when I worked in the library, that was when that book came out by whatever mm-hmm. his name is. Mm-hmm. It was a boring name, anyway. Um, Daniel I was Everett. not. A- yes. 
Yes, it was not a very interesting book, anyway. What? It was a great book. No, it was... Look, it was not that interesting to me. So... Well, it got interesting in the later half, where I actually started talking about the languages. The first part where he was talking about all his life and stuff was kind of dull. I've Mm. casually mentioned Pierre Ha on on the podcast, but I admit that I have not read much about it. Where did you actually get somebody... Substant- trying to substantially talk about it and not understanding. You know what happens all the time? People appear on forums, and even unfortunately on some language-related forums, where the younger members might have read something about Piraha in the popular press that confused them about what exactly Everett is saying, and very wild theories are spun out of a misunderstanding of his research. Well, I know everybody drives me bonkers. I know everybody throws in the, the the recursion thing. The only thing I ever mention about Pinerha is the fact that it uh, apparently lacks numerals. Yes. Which I know is true. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure about the whole recursion thing. Right. So he has a book, an entire book, which is really easily available, probably very cheap used, called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. And with the Googles, one can find him giving long talks, explaining what exactly he's saying, or papers with him arguing at length about what he's saying. You okay. do not need to rely on some crap you read the New York Times. You know, I'm gonna I'm going to learn a little bit about Perha this week then. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, it just it just bugs me when people just It's the Mostly it's a problem of the crappy popular press where you assume they know what they're talking about and then people come up with theories of language based on what they read written by somebody who does not understand linguistics talking about linguistics research. I think my favorite ones of those are like, you read the newspaper, like, bird grammar found. I'm like, really? No. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh. I'm just like, just because they put two words, and I'm quoting in the air, even though no one can see me, two bird words together, and it means something, does not make it a grammar. What was the one that said that cows in Norway had a special accent? Is it Norwegian <laughs> cows or British cows? There's some cows that accent. See, I learn about all these things through That's language. That's how they log. make the special Norwegian butter that they have to smuggle. And they <laughs> and they actually explain what the research actually says, which it, it's it's interesting stuff, but it's not. It's never what gets out to the popular press. It's not bird language. It's just the fact that they know that birds can construct songs out of smaller parts and that they learn their songs and stuff. Yes. Um, anyway. But it's just, you know, through the grapevine. Anyway. They simplify and it gets regurgitated in some strange Anyway, we need to actually wrap up. So let me say my thing, which is happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Comments, questions, and suggestions can be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and maybe leave us a five-star review while you're at it. You can also like us at facebook.com slash conlangery, follow us on Twitter at conlangery, or circle us on Google Plus by searching for Conlangery Podcast. Our theme music was created by the band Noel Device.
What what does it sound like? What 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 It sounds like mush. It's very mushy. It's Celtic. So that's two and a half thousand years of mush processes. That's the whole point. Hey, well, yes. you know, Celtic for languages. Apple to apple sauce, okay? Yeah, Celtic languages have crazy lenition, so they'll sound like that. No, but it's not like the other ones I've heard. It was just bad. I've I've heard one or two pieces of Welsh. It's like this sounds like English, but with one or two weird sounds. No, this sounded like Welsh with one or two English words thrown in. I'm so glad you sent that email about the song thing, because I was taking a nap, and I was like, oh, there's nothing to do. And then I saw it, and I was like, crap, it's Sunday, I need to read stuff. (laughs) (laughs) What an excellent example sentence. I don't like warriors of that sort. Oh, the most annoying thing about Welsh is that stupid L thing they have. Sounds horrible. You don't like laterals? Wait. I like regular laterals, not the one they have in Welsh that sounds like they're choking. It's just a lateral fricative, isn't it? I'm trying to figure out how that sounds like you're choking. Is there a ve- a velar version? Is there I don't a know. velar <coughs> lateral no. fricative? <laughs> Never mind. Um like that. I don't know, whatever it is, it puts some weird sort of like uh, fricativeness all over everything. <laughs> if I saw it on a spectrogram, there would just be all sorts of grossness all over it. Again, it's a Celtic language. Yeah, but I don't want fricatives on my vowels, okay? Let me be. I bet you don't like chocolate with peanut butter either. <laughs> Screw you. I don't want to buy you. So someone posted <clears throat> the spectrogram to Reddit with the title Sad Uzbek Fricative. Do you think I have time to make a sandwich? Artilambian, which is a grammar, but has so much f***ing anal retentive argumentation about every single point that it's impossible to read. Maybe when they find a real bird grammar, I'll be more interested. If you're looking for any sort of complex grammar, you're not going to look for it in birds, because birds are stupid. It's it, Okay, so it's more interesting than a chimpanzee who does not know ASL, but they do not have syntax. They do not have grammar. If they want something, they just start repeating words for the thing they want. Frankly, d- dogs can learn a hundred words. The, the teaching is interesting, but I think that if they were actually capable of our level of uh, linguistic competence, they would have language. They would have developed it, and we would see it in the wild today. Kittens. Let's talk about kittens. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the rest of the internet is devoted to. We are the only people not talking about cats. I mean, I would enjoy publishing a book of one of my languages, if just so I could hold it. Is this like my Jedi Council, which consists of me, my cat, and my husband? (laughs) I love Edgar Allan's Poe life. It's just a great story of failure in every account. <sighs> Earlier in the show, you called yourself old. And yes, I'm like, I switched between thinking I'm young and old and, intermittently. And realized that William is like twice your age. My husband thinks William sounds younger. What? And you, George, sound older. Oh, wow. Holy cow. Hmm. 890 listens for episode one. Yeah, Getting episode one it. was kind of a test episode. 
but yeah, episode 13, of course, is fairly high up. What's interesting is how popular non-configurationality was. Yeah, and getting started is. That makes sense. I think non-configurationality, everyone's like, what does this mean? <laughs> if you Google non-configurationality, <laughs> we no, are the third hit. <laughs>